0: show. Well, it looks like the period of calm may be coming to an end and the storm may be looming just over the horizon. The Dow Jones finished down today just over 200 points off the day's low. I think I saw us down about 280. You know, this was the fourth consecutive Friday where the markets were lower. Although I think there was a holiday in there, uh, so it may have been, it's been five Fridays, but one of the Fridays, the markets was closed. It was good Friday. Uh, But this seems to be a trend, although the market still managed to eke out a gain on the week. All three of the major indexes managed gains despite the losses on Friday. But what should really be worrying investors is the losses this week in the bond market. Yields continued to ratchet up almost every day, and in fact, we closed at the high point all across the curve from uh, the two-year up to the 30-year. The 10-year yield, which is the one everybody seems to talk about, that one closed at 2.96%. So this is a new high for the year, for the move. You got to go back to pre-2008 financial crisis, right, to get a yield up there. But the yield is still very, very low, Of course, the amazing thing is, look at the 30-year. The 30-year is 3.15. It's actually just under 20 basis points. 19 basis points is all you get for taking 20 additional years of interest rate and inflation risk. Think about that. Think about how crazy that is. I mean, interest rates right now on the 10-year are just under 3%. On the 30-year, they're slightly above 3%. But... Why would anybody believe that 3% yields are here to stay? I mean, obviously, if you go back, uh, you know, to the post-war period, you know, and and look at what rates have averaged on the 10-year, these low rates are an aberration. They've been going on now for a while, but they can't go on forever. Yet the market thinks it's going to go on for another 30 years. I mean, if you think about a 30-year bond, that's like buying a 10-year bond today, holding it for 10 years, letting it mature, then buying another 10-year bond, holding that one for 10 years, letting it mature, and buy another one, right? So you do that three times over 30 years. In theory, that should give you the same rate as buying one 30-year bond right now, right? They, they should factor that out. So today's 30-year rate factors in what people think the 10-year rate is going to be 10 years from now, and then what they think the 10-year rate is going to be 20 years from now. Well, clearly, the market assumes that interest rates on 10-year government bonds are going to stay just barely over 3% for the next 20 and 30 years. I mean, that is crazy. Why would anybody think that? I mean, look at the enormity of the deficits. You know, we're running now $100 billion a month budget deficits. And this is during supposedly an expansion. I mean, wait till we see how big these deficits get when uh, we're in recession. But, of course, the deficits get bigger constantly based on rising rates because the rates go up. You know, you've got the the two-year bonds now yielding 2.46. Well, when a two-year matures that was issued a couple years ago when the rates were 50 basis points, now they got to pay an extra 2% on that bond, right? The rising interest rates just compound the problem. So if you think about all that pressure, I mean, how big the national debt is likely to be, Ten years from now 20 years from now assuming that we haven't completely imploded before then which is a big assumption to you know believe that we're going to make it that far without some kind of crisis yet as far as the market's concerned there's nothing to worry about no inflation risk right Inflation's not going to be any higher in five years or ten years than it is today i mean why would you believe that with all the money we've already printed think about it. i mean inflation is now even the way the government measures it running at a six seven year high But look at the charts. Look what's going on. You know, look what happened to the price of oil uh, this week. We actually almost hit $70 a barrel yesterday. We got up to above $69.50. Now we pulled back a little bit. In fact, Donald Trump actually issued a tweet today. And they actually credited that tweet uh, for a bit of a decline in the oil market. Although even with the Dow down a couple hundred points today, crude almost only finished down about 24 cents. We still ended the week up. We closed above $68 a barrel. But Donald Trump's tweet basically was, you know, saying we won't take this from OPEC, that it's not fair, that they're raising prices, and this is artificial, and we're not going to stand it. Like, you know, first of all, what's he going to do about it? I mean, I don't know, you know, is he going to put tariffs on, on, on oil? I'll just make the price go even higher. So I'm not really sure what the threat is all about. Uh, but the reality is, Oil prices are rising in large part because of Trump's deficit finance tax cuts, right? I mean, we're printing all this money. We're running bigger deficits. That causes bigger trade deficits. That causes a weakening dollar, which pushes upward pressure on oil prices. So don't blame OPEC. Blame the Federal Reserve. blame, Blame yourself. Blame Congress, you know. And of course, the energy exporting nations, they have to deal with rising prices, So they got to raise the price of oil so they can pay for the higher costs that they're dealing with in their own country. And, you know, I hear a lot of people, too, talking about how, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about oil as much as we used to. Uh, Rising oil prices are not as big a deal because oil is a smaller part of our overall economy than it used to be. And directly, I guess that's true because years and years ago or decades ago, America manufactured a lot of stuff. I mean, most of the stuff that we consumed, we produced here in the United States. In fact, we produced so much stuff that we had extra stuff to export. So all those factories producing all that stuff used a lot of energy, right? So that energy was part of our GDP. Well, now, because we have these massive trade deficits, because we no longer make the stuff we consume, we simply import it, the oil, right, necessary to produce that stuff is not directly consumed here. It's consumed in the nations that produce the stuff that we got. But that doesn't mean we're immune to the impact of rising prices because the the companies that are manufacturing in other countries, they have to pay the higher energy costs, and they are going to pass that along in the price of the finished goods that they are exporting to the United States. So we still are affected By rising energy prices, even if we don't use the energy ourselves, it's still embedded in the cost of the things that we're importing. In fact, it's even worse because when we had a factory in America producing products and then shipping it throughout America, you know, you just had to put it on trucks and and, you know, and and send it within the continent of the United States. And of course, since we had factories all over the country, I mean, we might have had a factory in the Midwest and so it could ship stuff very quickly or inexpensively, like to Chicago or places like that, you know, if we had factories all around the country. But think about today. We import stuff that's made in China. Now, they got to ship that stuff uh, by boat all the way across the ocean. That uses a lot of energy. That's part of the cost. But not only that, this is the crazy part. Not only do we have to pay to have the ship bring the products, so not only do we have to import all these products on these cargo ships right all these products have to come to the United States and we have to pay for the oil to bring the ship here but now since we don't have any products to put back on the ships or that many products a lot of these ships go back empty you know we're only partially full that means the cost of the round-trip energy has to be incorporated into the price Of the goods that americans buy so that is a lot of oil to send a ship full of products to america and then send it back to china empty but also then once the products get to a port they're either on the west coast or the east coast now they got to get put on trucks and they got to travel maybe over the entire country so we even use more energy more gasoline shipping this stuff domestically than we used when we had a bunch of factories all over the country and they, the distance that they had to travel wasn't as great. So I'd say that we're more dependent now. Oil is going to play a bigger factor in, uh, in the general cost of living. So oil prices going up are a big problem. They're going higher. We're almost at $70 a barrel. There's not a lot of resistance between here and 80 or even between $80 and 100 And that's going to take away a good chunk of the tax cuts. I've been talking about that. But another problem is going to be rising interest rates. You know, mortgage rates now are at a four-year high, but they're still really low. I mean, we basically just got above 4.5%. I think a 30-year fix is at 46 But what's really going to crush a lot of the marginal buyers is those arms, those five-year adjustables. Those really, really low short-term rates are gone now. So you really don't save much money with an adjustable rate mortgage anymore. And that was the only way some people could afford to get into a house that they otherwise couldn't afford, is they had to take an adjustable rate mortgage. But this is just the beginning. I mean, if we break out, and that's another thing that nobody seems to be worried about. I mean, we're at 2.96% on the 10-year, and people are worried, oh, we're going to go above 3%. 3% is nothing. What about 4%? I mean, we can go from 3% to 4% in a heartbeat. I mean, unless the Fed decides to call off the rate hikes and do QE4. And you know, the uh, quantitative tightening, they've barely been selling any bonds. In fact, they've sold so few that the balance sheet hasn't shrunk at all. But supposedly, I don't know, in a few months, they're supposed to start selling like $60 billion a month, which is almost impossible because the Treasury is already unloading $100 billion a month. Uh, so if they continue to stay on this path, or at least the rhetoric is on this path, Rates could blow through uh, 3% like a hot knife through butter. I mean, we might stop or pause at three and a quarter. Now, of course, if the stock market really crashes, then you know, maybe that'll temporarily halt the carnage in the bond market as people now buy bonds because they're trying to get a safe haven from, from the falling stock market. But the real safe haven should be gold. And gold is still not going anywhere. They managed to keep it below 1350. We actually were down 10 bucks today. 13.35, we did peak above 13.50 once uh, during uh, during the week. The craziest day, I think, silver was up over 40 cents on the day. Closed up, better. in fact, silver was up 50 cents on the week. Gold was down a bit this week, but silver was up more than 50 cents. But on the day that silver was up over 40 cents, closed up over 40 cents, that's a big move for silver. Oil closed up more than $2 a barrel. Now, if I told you, Oil was up $2 a barrel and silver was up 40 cents. What would you think, right? You'd think gold was up at least 10 bucks, if not more. It was up a dollar. It closed at like $13.48.50. So you got to believe that the markets, they are using all of their firepower to keep the price of gold contained, right? To me, it looks like it's like a a battle, like you have uh, an invading army. Right, trying to you know, breach uh, the drawbridge of this castle. And so you've got all the forces trying to keep this bridge there and you've got the battering ram hitting on it. And so far, they've been able to keep the army out of the castle, right? If, you know, but how much longer can this come up? I mean, obviously, if silver is breaking out, if oil is breaking out, look, lumber prices hit, uh, I think, 52-week highs on that day. A lot of commodities, you know, you have steel prices going up, plus they're going up because of the tariffs. You've got lumber prices going up, What does that tell you about the cost of constructing a house? How much more expensive is that going to get? And now, of course, you've got rising mortgage rates, which means not only is it more expensive to build a house, but it costs somebody more money to borrow the extra money to buy a new house that was more expensive to build because the mortgage rates are rising. So to me, it's just a maximum level of complacency that you see the potential for a huge breakout in uh, interest rates where they spike much higher, right? Not just a 3%, but 4%. You can't see that in the bond market. You can't see that in the yield curve. You can't see it in the stock market. You certainly don't see it in the gold market. Everybody is oblivious uh, to these risks. In fact, I was watching on CNBC today. uh, There was an interview with Neil Cash Carey, you know, Fed governor. I forget the bank that he's associated with. Uh, But he basically said, first of all, he said, look, if the stock market corrects, the Fed's not worried. Because it's not like the housing bubble. It's just the stock market going down, and and that's just normal. Although when you have built an economy based on the wealth effect, when the Fed's goal of quantitative easing was to raise asset prices to create wealth, you would have to believe that the Fed would be worried to watch that wealth evaporate and, and not just be so dismissive. Now, of course, he said correction. Maybe he didn't mean a bear market. Maybe he meant that the Fed is okay if we have a correction, right? But... He didn't say what they would do if there was a bear market. Maybe if the correction turned into a bear market, he would be whistling a different tune. But I thought the interesting comment that he made was about the prospects for a financial crisis. Because he said, you know, when 2008 happened, the problem was all the debt and all the leverage. And that's why we had a financial crisis. He said we didn't have that problem with the dot-com bubble. And so the dot-com bubble burst and we didn't have a financial crisis, which is true. But we did have a recession. And it would have been a much bigger recession had the Fed not slashed interest rates to blow more air into the housing bubble. So the very bubble that caused the financial crisis was what mitigated the damage from the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Well, this is a bigger stock market bubble than that. And of course, if this one burst, we would have a massive recession. In fact, we probably would have a financial crisis. But what Kaskari said is that he and his buddies at the Fed have been looking everywhere for signs of a potential crisis And they can't find any. He said, there's no warning signs at all. Well, of course, that's exactly what they said in 2007 and 2008. In fact, even when there was the mother of all warning signs, the crash of the subprime market, right, the Fed looked at that and said, that's nothing It's contained. We're not worried about that. So the Fed has already proved when it comes to warning signs and seeing them in advance, they're like Mr. Magoo. They have no idea what's going on. And in fact, just like Mr. Magoo, you know, they create all kinds of havoc all around them as they blindly move through the economy, having no idea what's going on. And there's just all kinds of carnage. We are headed for a massive uh, financial crisis. And of course, if somebody at the Fed actually thought one was coming, the last thing they would do is admit it. I mean, that's what Ben Bernanke tried to say. I've mentioned this many times when he was interviewed Uh, well after the crisis when he was asked, you know, how do you feel about having been so wrong? And his response was, well, I wasn't really wrong. I just couldn't speak the truth because I was a member of the administration. And so I couldn't really speak candidly about what I thought. Well, you know, I'm sure that the Fed has got the same amount of candor now and they don't want to speak ill of the economy, just like they didn't want to speak ill of the economy uh, when, when Bush was president. But who knows whether they're just complete idiots or they're just hiding something. The signs are there, right? I've been pointing them out for everybody to see, but people just don't want to accept reality. You know, I saw some other guy on CNBC earlier this week. I can't remember who it was, but basically he was talking about the markets and he threw out a comment and he said, look, nobody can argue how strong the US economy is. Just throwing out out that, like everybody agrees. Like there's no way you can possibly argue that the U.S. economy isn't strong, right? Which, of course, I'm thinking, hey, what am I, chop liver, right? I mean, it's easy to argue. Of course, CNBC won't let anybody on who's going to argue that the economy isn't strong. So maybe if you're just going to measure that based on who's allowed to be on that network, yeah, maybe you can't find anybody who's actually invited on who would argue that the U.S. economy is very strong. It's not, right? The Atlanta Fed, they did tick up the estimate now there are 2%. Uh, for uh, Q1 GDP. But that's whatever Q1 is going to be, that's the high water mark. It's downhill because interest rates are going up. Oil prices are going up, right? How is the economy going to withstand this? In fact, look at what happened today just with Apple Computer. Apple was down about 4% today. It's a pretty big move uh, for Apple. And the reason that it was down is because people are worried about the upgrade cycle. People are not buying new phones as often. Not as many people are going out and buying the iPhone 10, right? They're, they're staying with the iPhone 8 or the iPhone 7 or whatever, the iPhone 6, right? They're, they're keeping their phones longer and waiting longer before they trade it in and buy a newer brand. And, of course, that's bad for Apple because they want to keep selling everybody uh, new phones. Now, the question is, why is this happening, right? And to me, the main reason is because people can't afford... make the upgrades. So they're going to stick with their phone longer because they don't have the money. And this is going to happen throughout the economy. Wait till you see what happens to the uh, car market because upgrading a car is a lot more expensive than upgrading a cell phone. And of course, you have to borrow a lot of money to upgrade your car. Now, of course, there are probably a lot of people that borrow the money to upgrade their cell phone, too. But you have to borrow a lot more money to buy a new car. And so that cycle is really going to be extended, especially when you look at how many people are going to be upside down on their existing car loans or leases. And a lot of people who bought cars over the last few years opted for five, six, seven-year financing. So it's going to be a long time before they even can finish paying off their original loan before they can consider a new car but this is going to happen throughout the U.S. economy where Americans are just going to have to keep what they have rather than buying something new because they're tapped out they have too much debt they have lousy jobs and in fact one of the ways that Apple is able to you know keep their profits growing is because they're raising the prices of their phones right look at how much an iPhone 10 costs uh compared to what they used to charge right now of course as far as the government's concerned, well, it's probably a price cut because the iPhone 10 is a little better than the iPhone 8, which, of course, it is a little better, but it's probably not that much better where, you know, the hedonics would. I mean, I've got the iPhone 10. I mean, I like the phone, so it's a little bit better than the previous one. But I mean, look, you know, most people would say, you know, it's not worth the extra money. I'm not going to upgrade. But this is indicative of of problems for the consumer. You know, we finally had that retail sales number. I hear a lot of people talk about how great the retail sales number was last month. Come on, we fell for three consecutive months. Finally, retail sales popped up, but most of it was on gasoline. Yeah, Americans had to spend more money on gas because gas prices went up. Where's the good news there? I mean, if they're spending more money on gas, what are they spending less money on to to have the money for gas? And that's going to keep going. So gas prices going up. Interest rates going up, credit card rates are going to go up. You want to buy a car, it's going to be more expensive. You don't want to buy a house, it's going to be more expensive. But again, every time you buy something, these costs are embedded. I mentioned earlier in the podcast how oil prices are going to be embedded. Higher oil prices to manufacture and ship are going to be, be- embedded into the goods that we import and consume. Now, of course, ta- tariffs might be there too to the extent that that makes it even more expensive. But what about interest rates? See, whenever you buy a product from a store, there's a good chance that the store has debt, right? Maybe maybe there's, or the landlord, maybe the landlord has debt. He has a mortgage on the, the building where the store is. But all those costs are going to flow through to the consumer. Because if my interest expenses are going up, then I need to raise my prices. Right? I mean, because I got to break, I got to cover the cost of production. If I can't, well, then I go out of business. Right, If I can't raise my prices and my costs are going up, well, then I'm out of business. Right, Then maybe you get a sale briefly, a going out of business sale. So pri- but then as the, the supply of goods for sale goes away because so many companies have gone out of business because they can't price their products high enough to cover their overhead. Well, then eventually prices go up because you have a lot. A smaller supply, right? You have fewer businesses selling fewer products and eventually the market clears but at much higher price points. That inflation is coming. The bond market doesn't even, doesn't even sense it at all. I started the podcast off with comparing the 30-year to the 10-year. They see no inflationary pressures at all despite what's already happening in, uh, in the commodity markets. But wait until the Fed has to reverse, right? When interest rates keep rising, and they will, and they're gonna blow through 3% or 3.25, and the market tanks, and the economy continues to weaken. And of course, once the stock market really tanks, now you have a reverse wealth effect that weakens an already weakening economy, right? And now you have you know the popularity of Trump or Republicans falling even more as the stock market is declining, the economy is declining. Now what happens? We already know what happens. We've seen this movie twice. The only difference is the, the ending is going to be even worse the third time they're going to cut interest rates but of course there's not a lot of room to cut they're not even at two percent they're one and a half to one and three quarters so there's not a lot of room to go between here and zero so the next thing is massive quantitative easing that's all they can do right is back up the trucks load up the helicopters and print a bunch of money and then what happens then the dollar tanks the dollar you know managed to poke its head back above 90 but it really can't garner much of a rally. Just like the bond market, I said this on my last podcast, look at these three markets. They're all ready to break out or break down. The bond market, the dollar, and gold. And it looks like based on the charts, the bond market may be the first one to break down. Then the question is, what goes next? Is it gonna be gold or is it gonna be the dollar? But of course the stock market is gonna get caught up in all this as well. And the big thing is going to be when all the people who used to buy or are currently buying U.S. treasuries as a safe haven. Right? They're buying treasuries uh, when they get worried about the stock market, when they realize that printing a bunch of money to bail out the stock market is not good for treasuries, even if the Fed uses that money to buy treasuries, because it is destroying the value of the currency, which is what the treasuries are all about. They're about promises to pay you dollars. So if they have to print a bunch of dollars and destroy their value to prop up the stock market, then there is no safety buying treasuries. What is the real safe haven if the Fed has to print a bunch of money to bail out the stock market or the bond market, the economy? It's gold. And that's why they've got this line at the sand. That's why all the sellers are out there trying to keep gold from breaking out. Because once it breaks out, the jig is up. Right now, everybody knows that there's a problem. You've got this warning sign flashing warning sign of gold. So the sellers are there, but you know what? You can't, they can't be there forever. They're gonna exhaust that supply. And maybe people start buying silver because if they gold's not going up, they start buying silver. But can silver keep going up? Can oil keep going up and the price of gold stay where it is? Absolutely not. So that's when it really hits the fan, when gold becomes the only safe haven, not the US dollar, not the US treasury market. And when you see the simultaneous decline in all dollar denominated financial assets, which everybody's gonna be scratching their head. How can this happen? U.S. stock market going down, U.S. bond market going down, U.S. dollar going down. That's a trifecta of pain for Americans, but it really tells you that the game is over, right? And there's no more tricks up their sleeves. They got no more bubbles to blow. It is the end game. Now, how long is this gonna play out? How many months, how many years? No way to know, right? But it's getting started now. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we have this period of calm, and it looks like it may be coming to an end actually quicker than I thought because a week of calm, two weeks of calm, really isn't that much. But the storm that's brewing is much bigger than the one that happened before, right? Just like, you know, a hurricane, you know, you go you go through the first part, you hit the eye, and then you come out and you get the rest of the storm, right? And so a lot of times the back end is a lot more ferocious than the front end. And, of course, that analogy applies... On a broader scale, if you want to think in terms of many, many years, not just weeks, right, we entered the hurricane in the 2008 financial crisis, right? We came out in 2009, 2010. We've been in the eye ever since. Now, this is an enormous eye because it's an enormous storm. And when we get to the rest of the storm, the back half of this storm, right, given how big this eye is, you can only imagine How big the overall storm is, right? This thing is going to make, you know, Hurricane Maria or Hurricane Irma, uh, you know, look like a sun shower when we have to go through it. That's why people have to be prepared, right? They got to be prepared now. I've been telling this on all the podcasts. You got to make sure your financial ducks are in a row. You can't have a bunch of U.S. stocks and bonds. You got to have money outside the United States. You got to have money in the real safe havens, the havens that people will flee to when they realize there's no safety at all in the U.S. market and the U.S. bond market, the U.S. dollar. You got to have gold. You got to have silver before these markets really explode, before everybody is competing with one another. While you still have these fools out there selling, you want to take advantage of that and buy.